Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 247. This uh, program is dedicated in loving memory of Luba Alta Taiba Lipsker, whose yard site is on the 25th of Shvat, passed away in 5768, dedicated by Tzivia Jacobson and family. We always begin with the timely chapter of the Torah and timely events. So we are now, this week, we're beginning the month of Chedesh Oder Rishon. Because this is a Shonimuberes, which literally means a pregnant year, a leap year, every 19 years, seven leap years, in order to reconcile between the deficit of a lunar year, which is approximately 355 days due to its 29, 30-day monthly lunar cycle, the discrepancy between that and the solar cycle, which is 365 years, so 354, 355, so approximately 11 days uh, deficit. So approximately every two, three years, there is a leap year. An additional month of Adar is added. And we're about to enter that new month of Adar. It's called Adar Rishon, the first Adar, and then there'll come the second Adar, which when we celebrate Purim, the month that leads into Nisan, the month of Pesach. And it's also the week of Parsha Terumah. So let's share a few thoughts on both of those in connection to obviously applying it to our personal lives. Teira is a blueprint, a directive, a guide to life. So beginning with other, let's just talk about this Shonim Uberes. It's interesting. It's true, it's a cosmic phenomenon and connected to astronomical calculations. The question is, why do we in the first place reconcile? Why don't we just leave it as is? Well, we learn it from a mitzvah from the Torah because the Torah says that you shall celebrate Passover in the Aviv, in the spring season, Chedesh Aviv. However, holidays are determined by the lunar cycle because when is Pesach? Pesach is on the 15th day of Nisan. That is the full moon of that month. The seasons are determined by the solar cycle. But we derive from that, that the seasons, that not only does Passover have to be on the 15th, according to the lunar cycle, the 15th of the month, but it also has to be in the season called spring. If there was no leap year, so the first year, yes, Passover would be 11 days earlier. Then the next year would be even 11 days earlier than in the spring. Another 22 days, 33 days, 44 days. At some point, Passover would end up being in the winter. And if you go further a few more years, it would end up being in the fall. And then it would end up being in the summer. And then come back to the spring. So we learn from this, that it should be Chedesh HaOviv, that we should be Ma'aber HaShashan, which means to fill the deficit by reconciling. Add a new lunar month. A lunar lunar month is approximately 29, 30 days. That reconciles almost completely the deficit. As I said, every 19 years, 7 um, seven leap years and that way Passover is always going to be in the spring season and the same with the other holidays following that <clears throat> now the key of course is in Israel because we know that Passover in the southern hemisphere is actually in the fall but the key here is that it's in Eretz Yisrael has to be in the spring season okay that's the technical part what's the spiritual and the personal emotional application the moon and the sun reflect two different personality types. 
They personify two archetypes. The sun is a mashpia. It's a consistent shining light. It gives. The moon, the moon is a recipient. It also shines light, but it's a light that's reflective light. Now, not to be mistaken, reflective sounds weaker. In its reflection, it has a tremendous power. It's the power of the student. It's the power of the recipient, who's also active, but active in absorbing as opposed to exuding. We, both, we all need both these energies in our lives. We need a solar energy to give. All of us have something to transmit, to teach, to illuminate our unique skills, our unique mission, our unique calling. But we also have to be recipients. When it comes to Eden, the Jewish people, we, are, we count according to the moon and we are compared to the moon because recipient is the key. David hu ha-koton, Yaakov hu ha-koton, Moir ha-koton, as the Gemara Talmud says. Koton means a small one, meaning small not in quantity, but small in its, its receiving. So it's not all powerful. And that receiving gives it most power of all. However, we have to reconcile it also with the mashpia within us. So we need both. And that's the significance, not just to be the lunar recipient, but also reconcile that with the transmission. The better you are a student, the more you listen, the better you can teach. And they complement each other, which is indicated and captured and reflected in a year like this. So on one, year, one, on one hand, it's a year that's like a deficit, which is why it says the Rabbeim were afraid of Hashanah Mubaris. They were always very tentative when it came to a year like this because the year reflects the deficit of, of the moon's kitrug, or the, the kitrug halavana, which is that when the moon complained, who is going to be the king? And God diminished the moon, said, diminish yourself. So it's a certain negative that needs a kapara. God says, bring an offering to, to, uh, as a kapara. But on the other hand, a kapara is an atonement. But on the other hand, we have the ability, like every deficit, every setback can lead us to a far greater strength. And suddenly the lunar year becomes even longer than the solar year because you're adding 30 days, not 11 days. So the lessons in this are all about our ability to receive, our ability to transmit, and how they have to be reconciled. We need both. Every person has both. It says, Ezu Chachem, who's the wise person? Halemid Mekal Adam, who learns from everyone else. Which teaches us two things. Everyone has something to teach and everyone has something to learn. We all have something to give, we all have something to receive. And that's the message, one of the lessons in the Shonimu Beres in general, in the leap year, and other being that we're now beginning this first other, which makes it unique, that's lesson one. Regarding Truma, there's so many lessons. I'll just focus on one, that, uh, of course, this is the chapter where it culminates the exodus from Egypt and the receiving of the Torah at Sinai, leading into what? Into into the manifestation of the divine presence among us. Build for me a sanctuary and I will rest among you. That's the message of Truma, which is of course a lesson to each one of us that we each, as the Shalom asked the question, why does it say, you say, you build me a sanctuary, I will rest in it, not among you, among them. The answer is because the purpose of the temple was not that it should rest among between stones or wood or during the, 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 the portable sanctuary, the mishkan, the, the tapestries, but rather it should rest in our heart and soul in each one of us. That's the purpose, to have the divine presence within us. 
So each of us is a walking Mishkan, a walking sanctuary. Whatever we do, we are the arms and legs that manifest and reflect the divine will in this existence. And that's the purpose and the meaning of of um, the lesson, of course, is as the Rebbe spoke in Tov Shemem Zayin, very strongly, and then Mem Ches as well, how we have to build in our own homes a Mishkan, that even a room of a child should be a bias that has Teda Vedic Mil Chasodim, should be a mini sanctuary, which means both the room and our physical beings are sanctuaries. So whenever someone comes there, they sense a divine presence, a refined presence, expressing a higher calling and a higher, a higher consciousness. So combining other and Truma, we have plenty of lessons that we can derive from. I will right here also refer you to cross-referencing where I spoke about both other and Truma in episodes 56, 102, 152, and 201. Okay. With that, let us move right into a question that was very relevant, especially in these regions. The United States. So a question was asked. We've recently been suffer- we've been recently had been going through a very cold, cold period, an Arctic wind, as they say, at Arctic temperatures. Are there lessons from the Rebbe about the recent bitter cold? So, Hashgacha Pratis, I'd like to play for you something the Rebbe is literally saying. This is the year 1973. 1973, we have that the Rebbe Shazar, President Shazar, this was the last time he would visit the Rebbe after a number of times. It was a very cold night, frigid. So Shazar speaks in Yiddish, and the Rebbe responds. Let me play it, and then I'll translate. And I think we have our answer right there. So bear with me. So, President Shazai, when he came into the Rebbe's room, he says, in Israel, even in the coldest regions, it doesn't come close to the coldness and the frigidity, frigidity that you have here. A, a coldness, a frost, he says, that is unbearable. And the Rebbe responds, that's why we send, or that's why I send Jews to make from the frost that it should be no more frost, but from frost and ice frost, to warm up the cold. So there's our lesson. When we see cold, whether it's physical cold, whether it's spiritual cold, emotional cold, our job is to warm it up. It reminds me immediately of what I heard myself from Rabbi Zolman Posner, Oliver Shalom, who was a longtime shliach in Tennessee, in Nashville. So in the early years, in the Friedrich Rebbe's time, the Friedrich Rebbe sent him to a particular city. And um, he was a young man, and he said he was very hesitant. Friedrich Rebbe sensed that he was hesitant. So Friedrich Rebbe who was difficult for him to speak. There was always a masker, a secretary in the room to help and translate or explain what the Rebbe was saying. So, but the Friedrich Rebbe was very, also very expressive through his hands. It helped people understand what he was saying. So Rabbi Zalman told me the following. Friedrich Rebbe, sensing his hesitation, said, as a soul has to come down below, it doesn't want to come, speaking in Yiddish. Why? Because the soul, where it is, it's, Bright and warm. Lichtikum varim. Bright and warm. And down below in this world, it's kaltum finster. It's cold and dark. So why would a neshama want to come? But God sees that tentativeness, that hesitation. So the Eberster tells the neshama, and the Friedrich Rebbe took his finger, 
that you have to go down. And the Friedrich Rebbe started moving his finger down, trembling a bit, to go down from a place that's lichtikum varm, that's uh, warm, that's illuminated and warm, to a place where Sekaltim feels cold and dark. And dorten darf lichtik machen und anwarmen. That you are there in the cold and dark, the neshal and neshame, has to illuminate and warm up. Almost word for word what the Rebbe said. And Rabbi Salman told me that every time, you know, we all have our challenges, whenever he was in a little darker, colder place, or sensed that, he always remembered the finger of the Friedrich Rebbe, and how the finger was like carrying him, and traveling with him, and giving him strength, and being there with him. So an unbelievable lesson. We deal with every challenge that comes our way. And when it's cold in any particular way, our job is not just to say it's cold and let's just put on a fur coat, but as Chassidus says, a tzaddik, not a tzaddik in pelts, but to warm up the environment. And then you achieve something that is not achieved even in regular warm places because you've transformed coldness and darkness to brightness and warmth. That's the lesson. Okay. Let us move on to... The next question about how do we explain Hasidim violating the Rebbe's limit on drinking? As I always say, there's no censorship in this program. All questions are acceptable. I sometimes will read them in a more refined way, so it should not in any way um, be offensive or expressed sometimes in a way that could be spoken in a more appropriate fashion. But here's the question. But we're not to censor because people have questions and it's important to address them. Whether we always have the best answers, we try our best, and we could always grow in that, and I welcome your input and your comments as well. Okay, I'm not sure if you have addressed this in the past. I am familiar with many of the sources where the Rebbe spoke about limiting mashke to four lechaims. Four small cups. My question is not about what the Rebbe said, since, as I just said, I have seen many of the sikhs myself, but rather about how chassidim conduct themselves. I'm not asking you to answer for others. I'm asking a sincere question about what you may call darke chassidus, or even darke chassidim. Darke chassidus is the ways of chassidus, or even the ways of chassidim. Is there a place for chassidim to conduct themselves in a manner that appears to violate, or at least is not very careful about something that the Rebbe spoke about publicly on numerous occasions? If there is no place, then why do you think that there is so much resistance in this particular area? Are people really that lazy? I don't think that's the answer. If you do three chapters a day of learning Rambam, and you are clearly not lazy about doing what the Rebbe wants, so how do you explain not being careful about mashka, drinking? Perhaps there is something to the view that says one does not have to be so strict. I am really interested in hearing your take. Okay. Well, my take. My take is this. The Rebbe said it clearly more than once, many, many times, in very strong terms. And I really have no excuse and no explanation and don't even want to try to defend anyone violating that. It would be like someone saying that even though the Rebbe said, learn Rambam, I can't do it. Fine, you can't do it. It's your thing. But that you are violating what the Rebbe decreed. And the same thing here, which in many ways could be even easier. Because learning, you could say it's harder to learn. So I have no defense. All I can say is for some strange reason, there's a laxity. And it could be the responsibility of some Ashpim and others who always felt that, you know, like 
an unspoken, as if the Rebbe made exceptions. We know the Rebbe did make exceptions at times. We know that Chassidim, before this decree of the Rebbe, did drink L'chaim. But as the Rebbe explains in many of his reasons, it was in a different time, in a different situation, and with a different level of Yerushalayim. And you see, the Rebbe, the Rebbe preempting what has become social drinking, what has become something that has nothing to do with Chassidim, Chassidim. So I really don't go ahead, I'm not going to defend it at all. I would say it's an absolute travesty, and nobody has the right to break the Rebbe's directive, which wasn't once, it was numerous times, to the point that there were times the Rebbe said, don't go on my shlichus if you violate my decree here. And the Rebbe was quite aware, I, I personally heard it many times, but it even precedes my time. So I'm not going to find excuses, and I don't want to. I don't think, it's just, I don't think it, it is appropriate for any of, any of us to try to explain this. What are you going to say? That the Rebbe is what? That we are ignoring what the Rebbe says? We don't think he means it seriously? I mean, with that, you might as well close the whole book on everything. You could say everything about that. Each one of us chooses. That's why you have a Rebbe. He tells you something, he tells you something. Whether you understand it or you don't understand it. In this case, it's actually quite understandable when you see the circumstances of the times in which we live and we see how people drink and why they drink and what it does and what it brings out from them. So there were the exceptions the Rebbe made, the four cups, and the Rebbe said a number of times, I give you the power to be able to achieve whatever Chassidim achieved by drinking more in the past through these small four cups. So there's nothing more to say, and I don't want to even elaborate further, and it's just not acceptable, and all of us have to have zero tolerance, and simply, am I going to say it's the biggest sin? I'm not going to say that either. But it is clear, a clear directive, and in this area we have to tell our children, tell our students, tell ourselves, tell our colleagues that this is not acceptable. As I said, even if you don't understand it, especially if you do understand it. In episodes 134 and 135, I spoke about this more extensively, about the reasons behind it, its effects, and so on. But not this particular point, why people are particularly lax. So it complements what I spoke about here. Might as well use this opportunity that all previous episodes are archived at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And you can easily find them. And in the YouTube version of the video, you'll find the timestamps where you can go straight to the topic itself. You can also find there in MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife the forum to ask questions anonymously. Any question you like, you can also comment, you can rebut, you can add. And I really welcome and invite anything you'd like to share, which I believe is an honor to have a platform here for all of us, a collective platform to hear different opinions, different views, and above all, if you, if you have something from the Rebbe himself or from the Rabbeim, a letter, a sicha, a maimer, a yechidis, a story, please share it and I will share it with the public. Okay. Next question. How do we balance parental influences with finding our own path? Rabbi, often you mention looking at the influence and sometimes constraints of our parents as one of the ways to understand who we are and might be part of what is holding us back from getting in touch with our true self and path. Yes, I'll just, the writer doesn't write this, but I'll elaborate. All of us come to a point where we, even with good influences, have to come to find our own voice, own our choices, and build out as we leave behind, not behind in a negative way, all the good influences there, which we'll soon talk about, but we leave behind in a sense not being no longer in the shadow, a 
attached by the umbilical cord to our parents. Okay, so that's what you're referring to. I love sharing with my children insights from your weekly global classes and other writings. However, over and over when I hear this, I cringe because I think they might interpret it as an opening to break out of the yoke of Yiddishkeit, which we expect them to continue to cherish even though we are not orthodox and more traditional. So to explain, the writer is saying they may interpret the idea that we have to grow into ourselves and leave, so to speak, our, the home of our parents, that they may interpret it as a license to actually break away from the traditions they grew up with. Our children are not as committed as we are at this point in their lives, Baruch Hashem as adults, and I know you are not meaning to suggest throw out the good influences, but if young adults, if young adults only see the obligations of Judaism, this could be interpreted as an area that is holding them back in their life. In looking for their soulmate, they think good, per- they think good person could be enough they think being a good person could be enough because why, while not actually part of a Jewish community or an organization, it is hard for them to meet fellow Jews organically. I explain it is not enough and they must keep the link to our ancestors and find joy in their Judaism and seek out opportunities to meet fellow Jews. Every time one will mention they met someone, I ask, is the mother Jewish? Sigh. Help me to understand how to share this concept. Parental influences, which I remember correct, which if I remember correctly, is one of three environment, and friends, which are usually mentioned together, without Yiddishkeit being an option to question in order to find their true self and passion. Bless you and the Meaningful Life Center and all your endeavors. Okay. So yes, it's the three things, which often are as interpreted, your birthplace, which is your natural subjectivity, is your society, social pressures, and Beisavicha is parental influences. And we talk about how to grow into being as Hashem tells Abraham, to go to the land where I will show you who you really are, because as long as you're under the shadow of other influences, who are you? So the question is, how do you balance it? Or as I put it, how do you balance parental influences with finding our own path? Now, obviously, this idea of growth, where we grow from children into adults, is, cannot be a contradiction, because it's very straightforward. Let's talk about a healthy home, obviously, because that's easier to explain. When parents educate their children, they educate them with the best they have. In this case, we're talking about a Torah mitzvah education, which God gave us, so parents are obligated to educate their children, because their children don't know it on their own. Education with love, with passion, with relevance, with warmth, with nurturing, validating. So children now grow up with a set of standards, values, morals, which empower them. Now, if they remain children, constantly just following what their parents said, that's not what parents would be proud of, and that's not what's expected. There comes a point where they leave their homes, well, first to go to school, but leave their homes and start building their own family. And they can't keep running back to their parents. So good education includes teaching children to be independent and individual. When the time comes, they will embrace the values they were taught, but now they'll own it. They'll make it their own. So it's combining the two. We don't want to have one extreme or the other. To remain completely under the influence of parents, even if it's good influence, but what about your uniqueness? Building your own family. You can't just remain at home the rest of your life. God forbid. On the other hand, 
to ignore these influences is also not the way. That's what education is about. And actually the verse states it. Educate the child according to his way, or her way, and even when he gets old, he will not waver from it. Think about it. On one hand, you're educating the child. On the other hand, you're recognizing it's his or her unique way because you're tailoring it and fitting it to the person and their particular strengths and needs and level and aptitude and so on, personality. So when the time comes, it's not just you taught them dogma. It's not just you imposed upon them. They've integrated it. So when they go grow into adults, they take that and even as they get older, they don't waver from what they learned from their parents. It's not a contradiction individuality from the values that you've learned. But at the same time, you have to learn to own it. Now, God forbid, if a person grows up in an unhealthy family, then Lech Lecha is absolutely understood because you don't want to be under the influence of negative and bad energy, whether it comes from parents or society or school or friends or your own subjectivity. So Lech Lecha works all the way around. Even in the best, you need to grow into becoming your own adult and taking what you learned and now adding your particular flavor, the way you play the music, with your voice, with your song, and with your building a home with your spouse and building a beautiful family. And you'll see when it's done healthy, it, it takes everything that you've learned and you add to it. And then you see a full-blown, both independence based on foundations that were there from before. So the foundations remain intact, but the tree blossoms and expands in so many new ways and different ways. That's essentially how you reconcile it. So don't cringe. You don't have to be afraid to talk about it because what you have to tell your children is these values are the foundation of life to be a good person, to be an ethical person, to listen to what God says, to do a mitzvah. But now do it in a way that make, make it yours. You own it. Play the music, even though it's the same notes, but play it with your particular flavor, with your particular notes, with your, I'm sorry, with your particular tone, with your particular method and voice. And you'll see it could be the same music, but it sounds completely different because now it's yours. More on this topic I discussed in episodes 1, 5, and 109. Okay, next question. Why in our prayers is mention made only of males and not females? Okay. Good question. Um, I'll give two b- basic answers. First of all, in Hebrew, when we say the male who instead of he, or let's say Adam, many people translate Adam as the man. But the truth is the man means the human, not the man as in male. And the best proof is read the verse. It says, Nasa Adam will create a man in our image, in our likeness. And the Hebrews created, Zachar Nukeva Bara Esam. Male and female. So the human race, the human being, is male and female. At that point, it was androgynous. So you have to remember that when you say sometimes the masculine, you don't mean masculine. You mean the human. Why is masculine the default? There are explanations for it, but not because in any way, God forbid, is to minimize the feminine contribution, because there you see the divine image, Zacher and Nekeva, the two halves of one whole. And it cannot be complete without the other. And even on the divine level, we talk about the masculine version of the divine manifestations, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kutshebrich and Shechinta, the Shechina. And both are necessary, Yichud, Kutshebrich Hu, 
We unite, we join. So the first answer is the fact that it's masculine terms or referring to males is not necessarily emphasis on the males, it's emphasis on the human. However, it's in the language of the masculine. The second point I want to make is prayer primarily. Most of the prayers that we say, uh, women are not obligated to pray. The mitzvah of prayer in the Torah is to ask for God when you're in need. When you have needs, you pray to God. Later, the rabbis added supplications, gratitude, tishboches v'heidos, gratitude and tishboches and, and other aspects of the prayer because when you pray for something you need, it's also good to create an environment and all the other explanations given. So since women are not responsible for prayer except when they're in need, so therefore, the prayer, since it's primarily focused on sublimating the aggressive male, that's why it's more focused on a masculine. But as I said, the first, that's not a contradiction to the first answer. There's two separate answers, and I'm sure there are others. If anybody has any thoughts on this, please weigh in. I want to also refer you to episode 188, where I spoke about what do women have minion power. So that complements what I discussed here. Just as a small aside... I don't know if it's an aside. There is a tremendous stereotype, and unfortunately fed by people who actually live by that stereotype, incorrectly, that for some reason women are seen as less than men in Judaism. As I just mentioned from the verse, it's absolutely incorrect. What would life be? How could a man live in this world without children? And children are only, the woman is maybe even more important. There are even books today and scientific studies that women are even more necessary for life than men. But let's keep it as equals. And you see it throughout the Torah. Unfortunately, every hierarchy, as it gets corrupt or it gets distorted, sometimes leans toward the people who are in power and control. But that has nothing to do with Torah. So the fact that the Torah gives men certain um, leadership quality, whether it's rabbi, whether it's Pesach, whether it's Adis and so on, has nothing to do with a woman's role. It's just different roles fitting different people based on their needs, based on their personality, based on their contribution. So, so when you know that axiom, then when you see something where you see seemingly, seemingly a focus on the word male or masculine, if you don't have the axiom, you right away wonder. But if you have the axiom, you know there must be a reason for it. In davening, for example, in davening Shabbos, Friday night, there's an, we say three times a prayer, and it we say, Ve'yenuchu boy, Ve'yenuchu ba, Ve'yenuchu bam, referring to Shabbos. The first one, Friday night, we say, Ve'yenuchu, and you rested in it, boy, in the masculine version. In him, so to speak. In Shabbos day, we see Vinuchu Ba, the feminine. He rested Ba with a hay, which is the feminine. And in Mincha, we say the afternoon prayer, Shabbos afternoon, we say Vinuchu Ba, he rested in them. So right there you see, each has its own quality, and then they come together in the third dimension of Shabbos, which is out of the scope of our discussion here, but just to give it as an example. Next question. Okay. I want to just mention here that these questions are all from, generated from listeners like you. Um, I'm trying to catch up. I think we're getting a little closer because I'm trying to crunch more questions in each program. But the fact is questions keep coming in. So even if you have not heard an answer to your question, and you may have submitted it recently, we will get to it. Because I just made a calculation. We have moved quicker. And this program especially, I'm, using, I'm doing a lot of questions finishing one period as we can move on and continue taking new questions, which 
are so gratifying and so powerful to see how the relevance, and that's why there's such diversity of questions. We really don't run out of questions because life, you don't run out of life, and, you don't, and life has its challenges and its questions and its dilemmas. Next question. What can be done to preserve a marriage in which a spouse suffers from a personality disorder? So this is a topic I've talked about a number of times. However, one, this was a follow-up to something I spoke about um, months ago. So the episodes where I have spoken about this topic is 50, 51, 81, 168. Where there I talked about the stigma of it, which I want to share an interesting thing I recently discovered after I finished addressing this question. So this question is a follow-up to one of those talks. Most people do not imagine the horrible consequences of a personality disorder. It can be extremely hard to detect. Dr. Otto Kernberg is the world expert, however. When there are narcissistic traits, the relationship can still work as long as the wife respects the husband and the husband also gives respect to his wife. Emotionally, a woman wants to look up to her husband. It maintains, and, and that causes the relationship to maintain, it maintains an attraction and emotional stability in the marriage. Look in Rambam or Ramah. No, it must be Rambam. Hilchas Ishus, chapter 15, the last three dinim. In general, a relationship has three parts, intellectual, emotional, and practical, as you have discussed many times. The Rebbe suggests learning some chumash, or anything together, the couple that is. It will connect the couple as an intellectual, on an intellectual level, do something, together, do something together which releases hormones to share feelings, like walk around the block, travel somewhere, the din is that a wife is to serve the husband at the table. This makes an emotional connection which was with respect. Eat together and not alone in order to make a practical connection. Do all these with a pattern. Make sure both of you have a track record of using empathy before you go out. Lack of empathy is hard to detect and a devastating tragedy to live with. Iskafia, delayed gratification, can help train kids to develop empathy. Okay, since this is a follow-up, and I wanted to just cover it, I want to just comment on the points here. Um, not all are exactly legible. I read it as is. Yes, what I discussed in those previous episodes, personality disorders can be a tremendous challenge and very often can really tax a marriage. But does that mean that a marriage cannot survive it? A marriage can survive and even thrive. It requires a lot of bittle, Bittle. If both spouses, especially the one with the disorder, acknowledges it, takes medication if that's what the doctor suggests, listens, and doesn't just think, I'm fine, and respects their spouse, that is the key to it. If the person behaves recklessly, where the spouse sees, I can't do anything, that usually will undermine a marriage to the point that it could actually break the marriage. Obviously, we do everything possible. So there are many, many things to do, and some of your comments actually refer. So the idea, when there is a challenge like that, you have to find ways, stronger ways. Where you don't have that challenge, you can say a couple, always, every marriage needs maintenance. 
<clears throat> every marriage needs work, but especially one like this needs extra to compensate, extra connection between the spouses in order to create even more trust and to counter all the negative effects of this personality disorder. God does not give us a challenge we don't have the power to overcome. But human beings have free will. So we can, we can unfortunately mess it up. But if we want to, and we listen, that's the key, to listen to Torah, to listen to your mashpia, to listen to the Rebbe's directives, to listen to the spouse, then you can achieve anything. And I've seen personally how marriages have thrived, even with a serious challenge of this nature. Take away the bittel, and there's no listening, and both spouses just doing whatever they wish, you're setting it up for a crash, a head-on crash collision. Okay. What I wanted to refer to, which is not necessarily necessarily here, but I just discovered it a few months ago, and I was looking for an opportunity. Why is there so much stigma related to mental disorders, mental illness? Um, so I spoke about it in episode 168, and then I was looking at something else, and I discovered an era tera from the Tzemach Tzedek. It's in volume 7, Parsha Teldus, of Bereshis. Volume 7 of the Eira Teira in the book of Bereshis. Teldus, it's page Tof 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 Yudalad, at the bottom of Omer Aleph, or 1214a. And he says the following. He speaks there about, um, about how something very great, when it's very high up, it could also fall very low. According to his greatness, that's how it fell. He's talking about the Nachash, which was the serpent in the Garden of Eden that was a very elevated level. And then it became the lowliest of creatures that eats earth. So he says, You can say, Insanity or some form of mental disturbance that comes from the Chachma falling. It's in people's minds, it appears worse and very embarrassing and shameful more than other illnesses. Then he goes on to speak according to Kabbalah. I found it interesting that Tzemach Tzadik would make reference to it. And perhaps that can explain part of that stigma. Because you're dealing not with, you know, if a person, God forbid, wounds his arm, his arm doesn't have that exalted state as the mind. But the mind, that's what makes us so powerful. That's what makes us, that's the highest part of our bodies. That we're in control of ourselves. So the terrible shame that's associated with that. But those of us that understand have to be sensitive and they can counter every force a person who has that challenge can be brought to a place that sometimes can achieve things that reach great heights. Okay. Next question. Sheva mitzvahs and abortion. Based on the Rebbe's emphasis on teaching the world, meaning also the non-Jewish world, about Sheva mitzvahs b'neich, the seven Noahide laws, do Jews have an obligation to bring up the prohibition of abortion in our politically charged climate. Okay. This question breaks into two. Two different people asked two different questions related to one another. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. With all the current talk about the Supreme Court and abortion issues, etc., I'm wondering, based on the Rebbe's emphasis about teaching the world about Sheva Mitzvah B'neich, do Jews have this obligation to bring up the issue of abortion, barring exceptional circumstances, considering that we are in a politically charged climate of hostility and resistance. You probably touched on this topic before, and if so, can you cite your earlier discussions? 
Thanks so much. The second, right, second question writes, Lately there have been a few articles about the Torah view on abortion and its differences with Christianity. Do you know if the Rebbe addressed the sensitive topic? Thank you. Okay. So the Sheva Mitzvah as we know, are seven universal laws that um, cover and include many, many other subcategories. They are the foundations of civilization, not as something dismissive seven laws. And that is, one, in the, they're written in the negative, but that, that one should have God, one should not abuse God or curse God. There's protection of property, not to steal, not to kill. Sexuality should be appropriate and sacred. I'm paraphrasing what it is. And, um, and not, in other words, not sexual inappropriate behavior. Which is not to eat literally a live piece of an animal, which in general broaden it, broadens its sensitivity to the creatures and environment. And finally, to have justice, to have laws of justice, to have courts of law and systems of law and order. If you think about it, it includes basically everything that defines morality and ethics, because everything falls into one of these subcategories of these general categories. Abortion, of course, goes into that as well. I'm not going to go into all the details, but if you go to Torah Meaning for Life on the chapter on uh, birth, I speak about the difference in abortion there, about uh, Jews, non-Jews, the second question that you ask. And yes, abortion can be considered like murder, especially for non-Jews. So it's included in the loisitzach, in the element of killing, sanctity of life. The question, however, is a practical one, not just a theoretical one. To say that abortion is not acceptable, we know what the Torah says. And we know also what the Torah ethics state. The question is, both for Jews and non-Jews, what can you achieve practically if you come out openly against it? There is a climate, there is a political element to it, and I'm not suggesting, God forbid, to be apologetic or defensive or hide what we believe. You have to always think, what will you achieve? If you can achieve, by all means, you should speak. If you can't achieve, and it's just going to create debate and, and, and being people offended, and they'll just dismiss it as being primitive, and just create battle, and people become more embattled, then what have you achieved? The general approach of the Rebbe in general, and the Teda approach, is to always approach things with pleasantness. Obviously, what we should be teaching the whole world, all the world, the Jews and non-Jews, is the sanctity of life, the beauty of birth, the gift of life that God gives us. When you teach children from the youngest age the sanctity of life, you rest assured that's the best preemptive education when dealing with abortion. Once somebody already has the consideration and sexuality is not necessarily sacred and relationships are not necessarily committed, then you're dealing with a problem that has already grown into many problems. Are you going to attack it from the abortion level? By all means, if you can, as I said, individually or collectively, I find in my experience it's very, very, almost impossible to do that because the distortions are already in place. So I think there's a short-term, long-term approach as in everything. Long-term, the best is to teach the positive rules of the Sheva Mitzvahs, how beautiful they are, how they make the best, they create and actualize the best type of person you can be, the best type of community, culture, and society, the best civilization possible. A messianic world. That will preempt and be preventive medicine to all the ills, including whether it's abortion or other issues that come up. That's the way to go. 
Short term, if you have an ability to influence someone, by all means, as I said, short term it's going to be a little difficult once they already have a different mindset and different axioms, and especially in a climate that's so politically charged and there's plenty of so-called plenty of thinkers and academics that will say it's not an issue altogether. So you then have to enter that fray and that battle. As I said, it's not so simple. So I will not make a statement that we have an obligation now to come out of I mean, do we have an obligation to come out of every ethical thing? We also have an obligation to come out against theft and against murder and against sexual impropriety and many other things that are complete crimes. But you have to be practical what you're going, what, what you're going to achieve with whatever you come out. If someone asks you your stand, obviously your stand is to have the most sacred possible life. So I think we have to be practical as well as know what the standards are and then what we can achieve through our education. Now, if you have a receptive audience, you have people who are interested and they want to hear, and you can present it in a very pleasant way, fine. You'll find most people, especially that don't want to hear, are not going to take it easily. That doesn't mean you shouldn't stand with your position, but the question is you have to be wise of how to present it to the best, to the best possible effect. Okay. I want to refer you to episodes 112, 192, 193, 194, 240, and 245, where I spoke more at length about Sheva Mitzvahs in general. As far as the Rebbe speaking about abortion itself, he may have made reference to it. I don't, I don't recall long discussions, and not because of the Rebbe's position. We know his position, but I believe it was for this reason. What would be the practical point in addressing it? So the Rebbe took the position of, let's talk about Shema Mitzvah, the positive, teach moment of silence, teach sanctity of life, sanctity of birth, sanctity of children, and automatically you're already including, avoiding the negative in, the, in that regard. Okay, next question. What is the story with a book called The Bible Unauthorized, authored by A.H. Moose? Is it legitimate? Okay, so some of you may not even be aware of this book, but I'll uh, share with you. The Bible Unauthorized is a book in English that literally goes through the verses, the beginning verses of the book of Bereshis, creation mostly, and I believe also covers some of the flood. Literally verse by verse, published in the 40s, 1940s and 50s, uh, 40s I should say, and um, it gives almost a scientific take of completely different translation that you'll be used to that you'll be accustomed to. It's not a literal translation, but shows the depth of the Taylor's approach of creation. Now, the interesting thing is when I grew up, I saw it around, and I found out that Friedrich Rebbe actually not just distributed it, but supported it and paid for some of its publication. But until recent years, I would say the 80s, when the Igris started being published, it was shrouded in mystery, who's this A.H. Moose? I heard all kinds of rumors some said it was the Rebetzin who wrote it, and is, is it all accurate? In the letters of the Friedrich Rebbe, all gets cleared up. Because firstly, we see numbers of letters, numerous letters where he makes reference to the book in a positive way. So let me, make refer- let me tell you exactly what the story is. First, let's start with the author of the book. A.H. Moose is actually, the name of the author was... Um, was uh, Rabban Levit. Rabban Levit 
is a Jew that was also the editor of Akriya of Agdusha that the Friedrich Rebbe published in the early 40s, the time of the war. We were Alta Lechuvel, Alta Leguli. He was the editor. His name was Ab Aaron Levitt. He would come visit the Friedrich Rebbe. He has many letters from the Friedrich Rebbe are to him regarding this book called The Bible Unauthorized. A.H. Moose is an acronym of his pseudonym, Aaron Harris Hirsch. So Aleph Aaron Harris is A.H. and Hirsch is a moose. Hirsch could be translated as a deer, but he translated it as a moose. And that's the author. As far as the book itself, so let me refer you to this. I'm looking now at Igris Kedish. The first time I saw it mentioned is in a letter from Tafshin Gimel. Where the Rebbe writes, the Friedrich Rebbe writes to Rabban, it's on page, volume seven, volume 7 of the Friedrich Rebbe's Igres, page, the bottom of page 399. He writes them, and he talks to my I want to speak to you about your Sefer, that, when you, that we discussed when you were by me. And he's referring to this Sefer. And the Rebbe is encouraging him to spread it, and he's actually helping him financially to distribute the book. Okay. That we have, that's back in Tov Shin Gimel. That's that. Then there are letters from the Friedrich Rebbe where he mentions this book a number, a number of times. I'm looking now at volume 8 of Igris Kedish, page 43. And there in the footnote, the editors write all the letters where Bible Unauthorized is mentioned. I'm not going to read them all. You can look them up yourself. And he speaks very highly of the book, how it's accomplished things in bringing Jews who are completely away from Yiddishkeit closer to Yiddishkeit. And in this letter, which again is to Rabbi Aaron Levitt, he, the Friedrich Rebbe, writes him about some effects that his book has had on people. Classes began in the book, Bible Unauthorized, and the positive effects. And the Friedrich Rebbe refers to people who actually travel. First to one person, he said, is someone who lives in New Jersey and travels every week, an hour and a half on the, on the, on the Pennsylvania Railroad to the Shear and comes back also an hour and a half and he uses it and studies it and shares it with others. Okay, but we still don't know what's the story with the book itself. So we now go in this uh, journey, historical journey, to a letter from the Friedrich Rebbe, Tarav Zevin. This is in the Igris Kedish of the Friedrich Rebbe, volume 9. It's dated Zion Tishrei Tovshin Vov. Tarav Shlem is Yesuf Zevin. Very interesting letter in general. He talks about the the waves, the, the environment in America of a lot of people, kofrim, deniers in God and Taylor due to their ignorance. But he says, we have an opportunity now to change that. And he says, I have proof for it. And this is what the Friedrich Rebbe says. Four years ago around, four years ago, I had the opportunity to, to become acquainted with someone who came out of Russia 40 years ago. He's talking about Adam Levitt. <clears throat> And all his years, he learned Haskola, which is Haskola, uh, philosophy, Ashkofa, ideas, ideology, logic, Bitsarfas Ashkenazopa in Germany, I'm sorry, in France, Germany, and here in America. And later he became an Eirach, he became an editor of a newspaper, a monthly newspaper, and a, a weekly one and a daily one. Not sure what newspapers he's referring to. But then he goes on, he says, and then he wrote a book which is primarily an explanation of the book of Bereshis with a long introduction in, in English where he explains the creation and divine providence in a way that is palatable to people in America, secular people. 
When my son-in-law, the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Shlita, that's what the Friedrich Rebbe writes, Schneerson, I asked him to give me a critique of the book and tell me his opinion if, we feel, if he feels that there can be a good benefit for us in our work. After several months, my, my son-in-law told me that the Sefer is written in an intellectual way and you have to learn it because there's a lot of profound material in there and there's no question that it could be a tayalus, a benefit to those that study it and help them in Shemitah's Kiyum Mitzvah Maisius in keeping actual, actual mitzvahs. Because in general, in a significant measure, the author does, um, does prevail over the opinions of the deniers and the atheists in proving the truth of, of, of Tehra. And Friedrich Rebbe continues, and therefore I, lo- I, I, gave, I loaned him money, $2,000 it seems, from one of my colleagues, from one of my acquaintances, that he should be able to print it and distribute it. And he goes on to describe its benefit in this letter. So what do you see from this? I heard, even though I don't see it in these letters, that there were things in the book that the Rebbe pointed out were not exactly according to the shita of the, the conventional traditional shita in Tehra. One of them I heard was he refers to fossils based on the interpretation of the Teferis Yisrael that there were thousands, there were millennia before the 6,000 years, that that what it says, that God created worlds and destroyed them, and that there was a Shemitah, Rishena, <coughs> etc., is the Arizal Paskins, it's Beruchnius, but the, the, the Nadrushk Erechaim from the Teferis Yisrael, he writes, that it was also Begashmi, so you can explain that the world is older than just 6,000 years, or 5,700, whatever amount of years was then. <coughs> So, but in general, the Bible unauthorized, as you see from the Rebbe, gives it a certain endorsement in its approach. And that's the story of the Bible unauthorized. So I hope I did justice to this. And if anybody has more details that I may not be aware of, please share them. Okay. Well, another opportunity, we'll talk about Akri of Agdusha, and how there's Rabban Levit, who is the editor of that, and uh, we'll discuss that. But that's not for now. Let me do some follow-up. And then we will do the chsidis and the essays. God. Now, I should have said this at the opening of the program, but let me say it now. There are nine days remaining for the essay contest of this year to win $10,000. So this is the time to, if you haven't yet participated, you have plenty of time. It, uh, the deadline is February 12th, Zion Odirishan, midnight. So submit, follow the guidelines, MeaningfulLife.com slash contest. And you have that opportunity, $10,000, $3,600 second prize, $1,000 third prize, and a $500 student prize. This year, many schools have become part of it. They are going to also publicize the winner in their school and also add to the prize. And also we have now Russia as well as participating in Russian. So in addition to English, Hebrew, now also Russian. So you have nine days till Tuesday, a week from Tuesday night, to submit your essay. So I want to encourage you to do so. Everyone can win. It's a specifically geared in a way that it's an equal level playing field. You just have to make the effort, take an issue, take a challenge, take an Indian exodus and apply it. You'd be surprised how it will enrich your life and perhaps also win $10,000. That would not be bad, wouldn't it? Would it? Okay, follow-up. 
who owns the Rebbe's words and images last week's episode? So I, you can imagine I received many, many responses, emails, phone calls, uh, all kinds of different reactions in both directions, mostly positive, but some people pointed out, and here's a few questions that were asked to me. One is, I agree with everything you've said, but how do you yourself qualify by saying, how do we deal with the fact of Hefkatus? Can anyone just print the Rebbe's talks and disseminate his images? How do we assure that this is done in a responsible manner, consistent with the Rebbe's wishes? And I was reminded, not that I needed to be reminded, that I am the head of Adan Ochasat Women, which published the Rebbe's Sichas. It's an original language in Yiddish for many years. And the Rebbe wrote more than once that not every Anoshim, Noshim Vitab, not every man, woman, and child can go print Sichas because he wanted responsibility, he wanted quality control. That was one question. Second was about, what about those that invest money, a lot of money, in either publishing or in imagery or in videos and so on? And they're doing it in order to disseminate it. If everybody can do whatever they want, it will undermine their investment and it'll be hard for them to raise money because people say it's going out there for free. Legitimate question. Now, for the record, those that heard what I said last week, I addressed both those things, but I will elaborate even more. Another question came in about publishing sikhs. Lately, some have been publishing a new version of the sikhs, of the Rebbe's Fabringens, combining different versions in their own new way. Is this appropriate? This goes back to the Hefkeris. Can anyone do whatever they want? And then there were a few other questions that people asked. Someone wrote very important topic, especially after the recent attempts to grab all that one special chassid worked on all his life to bring the Rebbe to the English language community. It is time for this grab to stop. The Rebbe, in his holy words of Torah, does not belong to a single family, to profit and to control. Then a critique. Wow, at 53 minutes, Rabbi Jacobson says that the Rebbe clearly wished for something. Yet a few seconds later he says, but legally that can't go on for generations, since it is Torah. Why is the Rebbe's wish as to who published his talks limited to his lifetime? In response to that, someone else wrote, Selective hearing. If you listen to the entire piece without prejudice, the dear rabbi says that he is not stating anything conclusive, only that there are two elements to consider. Torah is not owned by anybody. The course-related format and design, as well as quality control, and that there needs to be some type of order, according to Tate. Where in the world did you hear him say that the Rebbe's wishes are limited to his lifetime? Thank God for Rabbi Jacobson presenting this and other ideas with a clear approach based on Torah and not corporate agendas. Okay. So you see, this is a selection. I didn't even give you all of it. So as if you go back to what I said last week, I often do this. I lay out the basic principles. I'm not here to paskin. I'm here to lay out what I think is the way Torah Chassidus looks at it. And, and the main point I made was exactly that. Yes. That Torah is not copyrightable. Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah, nobody owns. God forbid. Who knows what would have happened. That does not mean, as I spoke then, and let's start with the Dine Mominus, that if somebody formats and, and, and designs a particular typeface, nobody owns the Gemara. You can, anyone can print the Gemara. But if someone spent money on a particular typeface, a particular design, so yes, they paid money for that. And they have to be allowed to recoup their costs and if they make profit, then maybe they make profit. They're not copywriting the Torah itself. That's number one. For that, you have to go to a Rav. Someone has a Shaila. I'm not going to Paskin because you have to know each circumstance. 
Did they pay? Did they not pay? What did they pay for? So it's not a contradiction to the first statement. We all know Teirah is not owned by anybody, only by God. At the same time, we have to respect investments that are not the same investment. They're trying to make a business out of selling Teirah. That's not the goal. They're trying to survive. They're trying to pay the cost to be able to disseminate, to be able to present it in a beautiful way, translate it, and so on. So you need to respect that. And the details need to be addressed in a, in a bezdin, if there is a shaila. Now that's, that, because also you can ask, do they have the rights over something? You say they pictures of the Rebbe, videos of the Rebbe, who has the rights over it. Now, if somebody purchased it from a photographer, or in other ways, then you have to ask the question, is that, uh, do they own it as they would own any other piece of property? So that needs to be asked by Rav. I'm not going to Paskan on that. If they spent money on it, what does that mean? Did the photographer who took the picture own it? Most likely that was his parnosa. So you would say yes. But I don't think this is the forum for a, for a din teda or for the K, but this is something to be addressed. I'll be teda. We have a teda. That's exactly why we have a teda when these questions come up. Now what about pictures that somebody finds in a drawer and nobody seems to own? Can anyone say, I claim I own all the pictures of the Rebbe that exist on earth? I don't know if anybody claims that. If they do, I don't see how, they're gonna, how they can, uh, they can, stand, they can um, prove that. Because when someone took a picture of the Rebbe and someone finds the picture, no one's laying claim. Now let's talk about, I don't see how anyone can say, I own every picture, every video, every sikh, every... You know. Now let's talk about the quality control. Yes, the Rebbe, the Befetish, wanted quality control. The Rebbe did not contradict the fact that Teda is obviously for everyone. But how to present the Sikha. Not everyone can come and now chop up a Hanukha like some are doing without any basis, without experience, without talking to people who have experience. The Rebbe gave people who had experience, who the Rebbe himself worked on and taught and trained, their rules to how to publish. Whether it's printed word. And the same thing with presenting the Rebbe on the public, whether it's an article about the Rebbe or it's pictures and videos. The problem is here, who exactly has the authority? What happens if someone says, I feel this is the way to present the Rebbe to the world? And someone else says, I don't think that's the way. Does anybody have an ownership over that? So that's an interesting question. That may be require a group of chassidim together. And when there's a disagreement, you, again, maybe not in a dintative form, because I don't know if it's an ownership thing, but who has that right? I feel, for example, when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, that I had the mandate to write it. Obviously, I showed it that Rebbe wanted people to review, and I did do that. But I was doing that all my life, writing Sikhs with the Rebbe Shtemple. But I'm not going to say so, there's no one else that has that ability to do that. And there's nothing wrong with having a few people who cons- are consulted to determine if something is appropriate to be publicized. Can you control that? Probably not. Because there are thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people out there, thousands of shluchim, hundreds of thousands of people who saw the Rebbe, and anyone can write a book on the Rebbe, anyone can say anything he wants. Is it accurate? Is it coming with authority? He'll say it's his authority, which we all do. This is what I understand. So I don't know if you can stop or control that. Is there a way to control how the Rebbe's image or videos are presented to the world? I, I would love to see if you can enforce that. I'm not saying there shouldn't be discussion, but it should all be done in a pleasant way where people don't feel that someone thinks they're the owner and I own everything and I'm the only one that knows how to present the Rebbe to the world. I would not make that statement and therefore I don't think anybody can make that statement. 
So I think there are a lot of different factors here, and I would divide them into three. The Torah of the Rebbe and the Rebbe himself, obviously, the Ibish descent to the whole world. Anosi Ador. There's the issue of quality control to make sure that people with responsibility who know how to present it, present it in the right way, and not everybody does an Afghan way. How do you enforce that? I'm not really sure. I think the best way is always the best defense is offense. Presented the right way, it automatically was seen by everybody. Ah, oh, that sounds like that, that resonates. Is that 100% soundproof? You know, airproof approach? I don't know, but I don't know how to really control that. I don't know if it's controllable. And then there's the issue of DNA mominus, things that cost money, people spent money, and that's the way they present it. That needs to be addressed, like, like every Torah halachadikah question, and not everybody can do whatever they want. These are my follow-up thoughts, and again, I welcome everybody's opinion. I'm not coming here with any agenda. As I said, I have an organization that publishes the Rebbe Sikhs, and I know people who take it and republish it without our permission. Some do it the right way, some don't do it the right way. Would it be menschlich for them to come to speak to me? Yes. Will I go to war with them? I don't want to make a statement about that. I'm not a warrior. I'm not going to war. But, but if it's done the wrong way, not the way that I would want, obviously it's not appropriate. So I'm quite familiar. At the same time, I'm not that biased where I'm going to say that I own it in that sense. No one owns the Rebbe. So you have to be able to have a balanced approach. If you take away corporate and, and legalities in the courts of law, and really approach it in a chassidish way, I think we sit down, we could probably come up with compromises or solutions that are consistent with the Rebbe's approach and are also fair to the parties that are involved. And there's ways to do that if you are really looking for the truth and not just looking to control or to dominate or to impose yourself. And nobody is above the law. Everybody is subject to that same guidelines. And if you did it in that way, with that bitle, you could probably achieve a lot. Okay. And that's my main point that I want to leave you with. Now, there was more follow-up. I see again, time is running out. <clears throat> There's a chassidist question of this week's passion. I'll just be very brief because of the limits of time. And that is, how do you explain the idea of mokim min amida? The space of the ark is not included in the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. means that the, the space of the ark did not occupy space, Bikitsa. This is a Gemara in Yuma, Chafalaf Aleph. It's a strange Gemara because it's like a, a, a complete contradiction, paradox. On one hand, the Holy of Holies was a certain size, 20 cubits. You measured from all to war. The Oren, the ark occupied space. But even when the ark was there and you measured it, the ark is as if it did not occupy space. So it occupied space and did not occupy space at the same time. So there's a fascinating letter from the Rebbe in Chelik Yud Aleph, Lekut page 319, where a chassid asked the Rebbe a question, why can't we use this as an explanation to, to the paradox of how do you reconcile a divine, the unity of divine unity with the existence of the world. That there is and there isn't. There is space and there isn't space. So the Rebbe said, this idea of the Oren, the Ark, not taking up space, is not an explanation. It's just an example that it's possible that two opposites can be together. Even that, the Rebbe says, that it's a, a, an example, it does not really fit here. 
the way you write the question. Because you can say that there is room for existence. For space. You can say there's something beyond space. And you could say that they both coexist like it is with the ark. And this proves, of course, that God can do anything he wants. But how could you say it's a contradiction in faith, the Rebbe writes, to say that there, worlds exist, the unity of God exists, and they both exist at the same time, without explaining how the existence of the worlds are not in any way an addition, God forbid, to existence of God. And that's why Chassidus explains that the existence of the worlds are only a reflection after a tzimtzum. And then once you explain that, then it's not two opposites. Because from the perspective of God, only God exists. From the perspective of the world, we think we exist because of the concealment. There is a legitimacy to that, but it's not they coexist at the same time. Then the Rebbe goes on to explain how this is explained in Chassidus in three different ways. I'm not going to go through all the details now. Maybe I'll continue next week. But he talks about three ways Exodus explains the idea of the space of the ark not being occupying space. An ult- ultimate explanation for it. You can look up the letter, as I said, and with that, let us move into, and uh, let me just say, since everything Exodus applied, the key point to remember is that the, uh, the ark that we read about in this week's Pasha, which is why I brought this Exodus question up, is an example for all of us to recognize that even though existence has its rules, from time to time we're reminded that space and not space can actually meet. I'll discuss this more next week, but it has implications also in our personal lives because it means even when you're doing something a mitzvah right now, in this time and this space, it connects to that which is beyond time and beyond space. It's eternal. So now, let us do now three essays from this week's, from this, this past year's contest. Essay number one is Physical and Spiritual Healing in Hasidism. David Yitzchok Garbarchik, age 46, Sao Paulo, Brazil. He's a shliach, uh, visits uh, the hospitals there. So this is in Hebrew. And, um, he's, and, and exactly that, he deals with the physical and spiritual healing of Chassidism. And uses his own experience visiting hospitals and hospices, he vis- using it to explain how Chassidus has an approach to illness an approach to healing that is far supersedes all other supersedes all other approaches, including the sensitivity necessary when you go visit somebody. And he goes into details. A very interesting essay, especially those that deal with uh, with uh, with healing and medicine and so on, and explains it in uh, in the context of so I see a T A T. What is this? tat. Yeah, how a person, how rehabilitation rebuilds himself after he's gone through a trauma. And explains how that is reconciled, especially enhanced through Chassidus. And uh, does so in a very powerful way, I must say. It's a very good essay. But I don't, to do justice to it, I would suggest reading the essay. This essay can be seen at meaningflife.com slash mylife. And there, look at the essays. And you'll find this essay, among other essays that are posted as we go. Very good. The next essay is Cyberbullying. Cyberbullying. Yaakov Kurer, age 22, Israel. 
And what he calls is Madison Using the principle in the Gemara, that which you dislike, don't do unto others, in addressing the issue of cyberbullying. And of course, addresses the problem that we find that prevalent today. And about and how we take the mitzvah of Avis Yisrael and not sinna, not to do something negative to anyone else, and applies that how to apply that sensitivity to the current internet platforms and our interactions, even when there's anonymity and you don't necessarily see the person. First of all, he's addressing a real issue, which is always excellent in this type of contest in these essays, and uses chassidus to address it. So that is very commendable. Okay. And finally, the third essay, Remedies for Depression, Ruth Andrusier, age 18, Brooklyn, New York, a student at Bernays Chamesh Academy. Do you have those days where you wake up, but you can't get out of bed? You twist and turn because you don't want to face reality. We've all had those moments. That first time you feel that way is depression greeting you. And goes on to discuss about depression, most commonly caused by trauma with the symptoms, laziness, a whole list of symptoms, nine symptoms actually spelled out here. I used to believe that chassidus didn't address topics such as depression, yet I found many sources suggesting remedies to overcome depression and its symptoms. We will approach each symptom with a remedy suggested by chassidus and goes through the nine things, laziness and sluggishness, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, low energy, loss of interest, two, fear and panic, three, fear of making decisions, four, no self-confidence or sense of self-worth, Five, guilt and dwelling on the past. Six, feeling alone. Seven, being closed up and zoomed in on ourselves. Eight, sadness and hopelessness. And nine, loss of control. And uses chassidus to address each one of these nine symptoms or expressions of a form of depression. Well, well done. Thank you for that. So with this, we conclude the week, this week's episode 247 of My Life Chassidus Applied. Everyone should have a frelech and chedesh. We're going into Adar. Mishanichnas Adar Marben Besimcha. Simcha is the best tool to fight all negative things, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 26 and on in Tanya. Simcha, Simcha Sachayim. So everyone should be blessed with a real Simcha Dik Adar. And every day, Maelam Bekedesh, as the Rebbe explains, we grow in joy. And this year we have double joy. The first Adar, then the second Adar. Uh, inner joy, contentment of Nachas from ourselves, pleasure from ourselves, from our families, from everyone around us, a simcha that has the power to pay its gedr, break through all bad barriers, an upbeat attitude, that when you have that, everything else falls into place. Not like some mistakenly think, if everything falls into place, then I'll be happy. No, be happy and everything will fall into place. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. We depend on your support, morally, spiritually, with questions, and of course financially, and you can do so by dedicating generously at MeaningfulLife.com sponsorship to sponsor and dedicate a program in honor of a loved one, a memory of a loved one, every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a Fredrich and Chedesh Adar. I'll see you next Sunday. Be well.